you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job 36. We're looking at the uh, speeches of this young man named Elihu. Uh, I, I told you before, if you, if you pick up commentaries on the book of Job, many of them are uh, pretty hard on Elihu. Well, he's an arrogant young jerk that really you know, doesn't know what he's talking about. I take a different approach. I do not believe that Elihu is wrong. Uh, one reason for that is God doesn't say he is. God does say that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have got it wrong. And God says that Job has got it wrong. But if you look at the speech, when we get to chapter 38 and God begins to address Job, you'll find that his tone is much like that of Elihu. He, he says to Job, basically, Job, who do you think you are? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Just exactly what were you doing when I put the stars in the sky? We have a problem. We have many problems. But we have a real problem as human beings in believing that God is just tiny bit, a tiny bit smarter than the smartest human being that has ever been. Take the smartest human being that has ever been, whoever that might be. I don't know. I, all I know is it ain't me. But whoever it would be, and God's just a little smarter. No, God is infinitely smarter if you were to combine all of the brilliant human beings of all of time, God is infinitely smarter, infinitely wiser than all of them. Elihu is arguing to Job, not that Job sinned and that was why his suffering came. Elihu says, no, Job, you have sinned in your suffering. You have accused God of being unfair. You've accused God of being unjust. And that cannot happen. Elihu basically uses the argument or makes the argument that God is righteousness itself. And therefore, he cannot do wrong. Now, the basis of uh, Elihu's argument is, is this. First of all, God is omniscient. He knows everything. There is nothing God does not know. Think of how limited our knowledge of things is. You know, the longer that I live, the more I am aware of how little that I know. It, there's so much to know, and there's so little time to know it. But God has infinite knowledge. There's nothing God doesn't know. I, I've said many times before, don't think that when we die and go to heaven, we will know everything that God knows. We will never know everything that God knows. In, in 50 trillion years, we still will not have exhausted His knowledge. Even though our capacity to learn will be eternal, we still can't know what God knows. We're not God. So 
having all knowledge. Think of what a leg up that is in making judgments. You know, with, with, with us, we make our judgments. We, we gather what information we can. Most of the time, it's incomplete. And we go, now we're going to make our, our best guess, our educated guess. You know, what if we had all knowledge? What if we would even, could even know what men were thinking? And we could make decisions based on all knowledge. Then you couldn't be wrong. If you had all knowledge, you couldn't possibly be wrong. But secondly, Elihu argues that God is righteous not only because he is omniscient, but he is also omnipotent. He has all power. Now combine those two. Perfect, infinite, eternal wisdom. All power. That means that God is just and he is righteous. And well might we look out on these people, some of whom I've talked about in illustrations where they pass judgment on God because he commands Abraham to kill Isaac or in 1 Samuel 15 where he tells the Israelites to kill the Amalekites and say, oh, God is immoral. Excuse me? One with all wisdom, one with all power, one who is perfect in every respect, and somehow you think you can pass judgment on him? A man, puny, finite, limited, can pass judgment on the eternal, infinitely wise, all-powerful, completely righteous God? The idea is absurd in the extreme. And that is basically the argument of Elihu. The central point of Elihu's argument is this. Only cosmic power can affect cosmic justice. Only God can make completely righteous judgment. Because God is God. Cosmic power brings perfect cosmic justice. Only the commander-in-chief of the universe has the universal understanding to know fully just how the victory over, over evil can be won. And only he has the cosmic power to put that plan into effect. God knows what he's doing. Trust him. That's what Elihu is saying. Trust God. He knows what he's doing. He is God. He is righteous. He cannot make a mistake. Now, but now hold on a second. Don't think that because that is true, you can understand it all the time either. Sometimes I think, well, I, I may not know in this life what God is doing. And then I think, I may, I may not ever know what God is doing in that respect. Because, again, I can never know God completely. To one man, like Job, who was a great man in, in his own right, in his own place, his, his understanding is 
woefully lacking when compared to God's. He cannot know completely what real justice looks like. A lot of times, I'll admit, a lot of times I read the Bible and scratch my head and think, eh, I don't know what God's doing there. But I have learned, I hope, to ascribe that to my own ignorance and not to some shortcoming in God. You, I, I said when we started the book of Job, do you remember? I said that one of the lessons we're going to learn, I hope, in the book of Job is God is God and you ain't. Okay? God is God and I am not. That, that's, a, that's a fundamental lesson you would think that man would learn immediately, but he has a hard time with it. And that is why men end up passing judgment on the God of heaven. Because man does not start with the basic premise and presupposition that they are not God and that he is. All right. Elihu begins this portion of his argument with an appeal, a motive, an authority, an aim, and a claim. I didn't mean for those last two to rhyme, but it's kind of nice. The appeal is for Job to keep on listening. He says, bear with me a little. Verse 2, I will show you, for I have yet something to say. Elihu knows that we do not naturally listen to God's truth. We turn it off, and we need to be encouraged to keep on grappling with the truth, to stay with it. The motive, he says in the last part of verse 2, is that he is speaking on God's behalf. He is God's mouthpiece. Elihu's authority comes because he has gained his knowledge from afar. Now that does not mean that he's working for a department somewhere that's been to afar. Don't get it that way, see? He has knowledge from afar, from a long way off, okay? You've got to put away your East Tennessee accent here for a minute. The expression from afar may simply mean that uh, Elijah has traveled a long way and that he has extensively used libraries and wisdom and knowledge from around the world. But it is far more likely that he is claiming to speak as a prophet, uh, that he has knowledge from the far-off realm where God dwells, and that he is making an implicit claim for divine inspiration, that he is speaking, literally speaking, on God's behalf, that God has given him the words to speak to Elihu, and I think that is definitely the case. The expression from afar is often used to express the, the heavenly distance between God and his people. Uh, Psalm 138.6, we're told that the haughty God knows from afar. The psalmist said in that same psalm, uh, or excuse me, the next psalm, Psalm 139, you discern my thoughts from afar. In Jeremiah, the prophet describes God as a God who is far away. Jeremiah 23. And the expression from afar is repeated, you will notice, down in verse 25 
of chapter 36. So it's kind of an inclusio. He begins with that phrase and he uh, finishes with it. Elihu's aim is told to us in verse 3, to ascribe righteousness to my maker. This does not just mean that Elihu is saying that the creator is just, but also that he has the power to prove and demonstrate that he is just. This has been Elihu's aim in all of his speeches. His motive is to proclaim the righteousness of God to Job and his three friends. That's what launched him to intervene from the beginning, you remember. Now, finally, Elihu claims that because his motive is right, because his authority is God-given, because his aim is God-honoring, and that so then the content of what he says is reliable. Verse 4, he says it's not false. That is, it is not twisted. It is not perverted. He speaks with the one who is perfect in knowledge. Well, then there, that's where the critics of Elihu just go off. Oh, oh, he's just being so arrogant. Listen to him, a man who claims to speak with perfect knowledge. But yet, if he speaks as a prophet of God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is he not speaking as one who is perfect in knowledge? For that limited claim, Elihu is simply saying that he speaks as a prophet. He speaks words that God has given him. And so in that respect, he is perfect in knowledge. He's not being arrogant. He's simply saying he's a prophet of God. Uh, So after that introduction, Elihu expounds his two main points. And each of them focuses on the greatness of God. He defends God's justice by expounding his greatness. Uh, One scholar has pointed out that the words behold God are important and that they are emphatic. Elihu begins this way three times in his speech and everyone draws attention to the power of God. Verse 5, behold, God is mighty. Verse 22, behold, God is exalted in power. Verse 26, behold, God is great. And at the end of the speech, verse 30, chapter 37, verse 23, the Almighty is great in power. Again, the logic of Elihu's argument is that only cosmic power can guarantee cosmic justice. The only one in the universe who can give perfect justice is God Almighty. Because only He has perfect knowledge and all power. So the response that Elihu uh, calls for is consistent with that. He says that Job and we should bow in humble submission before the grandeur of God's power and trust that He will achieve cosmic justice in the end. Behold, Shall not the God, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? 
Whenever you look at what God is doing in the world and don't understand it, just trust that it is right because he cannot do wrong. He cannot do wrong. Uh, let's assume that a, a commander uh, of, a, of, a, of a squad on a battlefield, a second lieutenant, gets an order. And to him, the order looks ridiculous. He thinks, what? I can't do that. And yet he has a very small section of the battlefield. The general who has sent down this order is looking out over the whole campaign. And this little part that this lieutenant must carry out is just a tiny fraction of it. The lieutenant can't see the whole campaign. That, that's not in his purview. It is the same with us. We, we get limited little bits of information. And we may question it. What, how in the world is this going to make any difference? Why should we do this? How is this even right? We must trust that God, who is righteous, will do what is right. Elihu states his argument, beginning in verses 5 and 7. He says that God's mighty nature, the phrase strength of understanding, is literally strong of heart. It seems to refer to God's determination to work out his purposes of cosmic justice and not be frustrated in this. He has said in his purpose, God is going to do what he has determined to do. And he has the power and the knowledge to do it. But in his mighty nature, Elihu says he does not despise human beings. He cares for them. He expands on that in verses 6 and 7 in, in deliberately unequal ways. In the first part of verse 6, uh, he affirms that God will not allow the wicked to stay alive indefinitely. He will punish them. God is ultimately going to punish the wicked. He may not do it today or tomorrow or next week, but ultimately God will punish the wicked. And then in verses 6, the last part of verse 6 and 7, he says that he will vindicate the righteous. He will uh, see that those who trust in them uh, will be vindicated. They will, they will be proven right. He will exalt them to places of great dignity. The, the phrase with kings on the throne forever. Verse 7. Here is a God whose power is used emphatically in gracious justice for believers who are persecuted by the unbelievers of this world. In verses 8 through 10 he talks about the just discipline of God. Here, here is something that's, that, that's interesting. Uh, he contradicts the prosperity gospel of the three comforters. They have said, if you just do the right thing, God will always bless you. You'll never have any problems. You'll never be sick. You'll never lack money. If you, if you, if, if you lack money, if you are sick, then you've done something wrong. No, Elihu says, the righteous are often caught in cords of affliction. Verse 8, the righteous do suffer. This happens when God declares to them their work. That is, he shows them the true nature of their heart, that even their most noble deeds are tainted by sin. And in particular, their transgressions, they are behaving arrogantly. And again, Elihu does not deny 
that there is such a thing as suffering for those who are righteous. He does not therefore deny that that may be the case for Job. He's not saying, Job, I don't think necessarily that you are going through all of this because of some sin you've committed. We know that that is true, that, that, is, that Job is not sin. But what he does say, and it's basically his argument that we saw back in chapter 33, that suffering often brings out the pride and rebellion that are in the hearts of God's people and that they sin in that suffering. When, when trouble comes, we become impatient. We lose our self-control. We lose our uh, right understanding of God. And we say, why has God allowed this to happen to me? I'm a good person. Actually, no, we're not good persons. <laughs> but suffering causes that to happen. We inevitably do that. The Bible says that even Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It's one of the strangest verses in all the Bible. Now, he did it without sin, but the writer of Hebrews says that he learned obedience by what he suffered. So Elihu says that God graciously opens their ears to instruction in verse 10. That indicates an obedient listening and submission uh, as shown in Isaiah 50 where the servant of the Lord says, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. In this way, God summons people to repentance from the pride and rebellion that is in their hearts. Elihu is saying something totally different from what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been saying to Job throughout this book. He can agree that Job is not being uh, punished for unforgiven sin prior to his suffering, but he argues, and that he agrees with Job, but he argues that in his suffering, Job has sinned. The suffering has caused sinful attitudes to rise up in the heart of Job, and they have manifested themselves in some terrible things that Job has said about God. We've seen that through our study. Uh, and he is right. Everyone who suffers, that, that happens to us, except for Jesus Christ. He suffered without sin. We, we suffer with sin. So then he, he talks in verses 11 through 15 uh, about the two possible responses to the loving discipline of God. When God brings this kind of discipline into our lives, how do we respond? Positively, there are those who listen and serve him. That is, they heed his discipline and they bow down under it in humble patience. And he says in verse 11, they are richly blessed. On the other hand, those who refuse to listen, verse 12, will perish and die without knowledge. What is happening for these people is that their suffering reveals the godlessness of their hearts, which is shown by their simply getting angry and resentful. They refuse to go to God in prayer, verse 13. Suffering intensifies their antagonism toward God. Suffering reveals what is truly in the heart. 
If those who are suffering, who respond with pride and rebellion, will repent, they prove that they were really God's children. But if they do not repent, they prove that they were never God's children. That they went out from among us because they were not of us. Uh, we, we talk a little bit about apostasy, about those uh, in the church, both ones that we know and others who come to a point in life and say, well, I'm just no longer a Christian. Well, it's because they were never a Christian to start with. It is not that they were a Christian and suddenly now they're not. It, it is simply that their life experience, whatever it may have been, has revealed what was truly in their heart. And by contrast, in verse 15, he says, God delights in using affliction to deliver the afflicted, bringing them to a place of humility where their ears are open. God softens hearts and opens the ears of his children by the means of adversity. So, here's a real paradox for you. There is no such thing as the prosperity gospel. But there is such a thing as the adversity gospel. God brings adversity into the lives of his children to soften our hearts and to make us obedient to him. All that Elihu has described in these verses 5 through 15 is God's mighty determination to save the righteous and to punish the wicked. That is to say, it takes the mighty power of God acting through suffering and discipline to keep the righteous humbled under his mighty hand and to bring the godless to judgment. And that's what God is doing in the world. Trust Him. For only cosmic power can bring to pass cosmic justice. Only a righteous, all-powerful, all-wise God can bring about perfect righteousness. In the midst of suffering, Listen closely to what Elihu is saying. Take his advice. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In just a moment, we're going to have a word of prayer.